Welcome to the China in the World podcast, a series of discussions examining China's foreign policy and shifting engagement with the world. Brought to you by the Carnegie Tsinghua Center in Beijing and hosted by Paul Mann. Welcome, everyone, to the first panel of the Carnegie Tsinghua Center's Carnegie Global Dialogue series on U.S.-China relations. My name is Paul Hanley. I'm the director of the Carnegie Tsinghua Center in Beijing, and I'm glad to be joined today by two colleagues and friends, Dr. Evan Feigenbaum and Dr. Xie Tao. For those of you unfamiliar with our Carnegie Global Dialogue series, uh, this is uh, CTC's eighth year, in fact, hosting this series. It's a series of panel discussions that we hold examining China's evolving foreign policy and international role from the perspective of Carnegie scholars across the globe uh, at our centers across the globe. Normally we host those discussions in Beijing, we have audience members from around the world listening in today virtually. And we're kicking off our series with the US-China panel, but over the next few months, uh, keep, uh, keep your eye out for other discussions with Carnegie scholars from Beirut, Moscow, Brussels, and New Delhi. And in fact, in just over a week, next Wednesday, December 9th, we'll be hosting the second discussion in the series on China-India relations, and we'll have uh, Ashley Tellis and Dr. Han Hua from China. Because we're doing these uh, virtually this year, I'm also uh, glad to announce that this discussion will be posted at the end on our China in the World uh, podcast series, and we're going to make this an interactive podcast. Our China in the World podcast is seven years old now. We've recorded over 150 episodes, and I encourage you to go back and listen to some of those if you're interested in Chinese uh, foreign policy. For our discussion today, we're glad to be joined by uh, Dr. Evan Feigenbaum and Dr. Xie Tao. Uh, let me just give a brief introduction of both. Uh, Evan is the Vice President for Studies at the Carnegie Endowment. He's also the head of Carnegie's Asia program, where he oversees research in Washington, Beijing, and New Delhi. It's a broad, dynamic region, which encompasses both East Asia and South Asia. Evan was initially an academic, earning a PhD from Stanford. In fact, we met shortly after that in the late 90s when he was doing a postdoc at Harvard. But his impressive career has spanned government service, think tanks, private sectors, and it covers three major regions of Asia. Very impressive. He has served in the State Department uh, from 2001 to 2009 during the entirety of the Bush administration, George W. Bush, where he was Deputy Assistant Secretary for South Asia, Deputy Assistant Secretary for Central Asia, and played a key role uh, as a member of the policy planning staff focusing on East Asia and the Pacific. Prior to joining Carnegie, Evan uh, was vice chairman at the Paulson Institute at the University of Chicago uh, and was co-founder of Macro Polo, its digital venture which covers China macro and economic issues. Thank you, Evan, for joining us today. Dr. Xie Tao uh, is professor uh, and has been dean of the School of International Relations and Diplomacy at Beijing Foreign Studies University uh, for the last year and a half. Uh, his research, um, when he's able to do it, when he's not handling his dean uh, responsibilities, uh, includes U.S. domestic politics, public opinion, U.S.-China relations, and Chinese foreign policy. Uh, Xie Tao received a PhD uh, in political science from Northwestern University in Chicago, uh, and he's the author of two books, U.S.-China relations, China policy, and Capitol Hill, and Living with the Dragon, How the American Public Views the Rise of China. He's published dozens of articles in prominent Chinese and English journals. Uh, and to our benefit at the Carnegie Tsinghua Center, Dr. Xie Tao is a frequent participant in our activities and our scholarship, and we uh, benefit greatly from that. So thank you, Xie Tao, and thank you, Evan. Thank you both of us for joining us this morning. Thank you. Before we kick off, let me just go through a couple housekeeping items. First, we do want to give the audience an opportunity to ask questions. This is a live and interactive discussion. Uh, and so to submit a question for the event, you can use the YouTube chat or you can tweet us at Carnegie Beijing. Secondly, as I mentioned, we're going to post this episode to our China in the World podcast shortly after we finish the live recording. 
uh, and you'll be able to listen to the recording on whatever app you use to listen to podcasts. We're also going to post a video recording on YouTube. So let's kick off. Uh, Evan and Xiaotao, I spoke to both of you, in fact, on the China in the World podcast uh, this spring, uh, this year, in 2020. Uh, encourage viewers and listeners to go back and listen to those episodes. This was back in the spring. COVID-19 pandemic was relatively new to everyone. Uh, and at the time, uh, many commentators were describing the U.S.-China relationship as having reached a new low. Evan, you remarked on our podcast that bilateral relations were in a state of free fall. And Xiaotao, you described the relationship as quote, arguably at its lowest point since 1972. Evan, let me ask you to kick off uh, to share your views on where the relationship stands today. Uh, how has the situation changed since we last spoke in April? And importantly, uh, what impact in your view will Biden's victory have on the trajectory of the relationship going forward? Well, thanks, Paul. First, it's good to be with you. It's good to be with Chetal. I didn't realize he was in Evanston, so it's good to see a fellow Northsider. Must mean you're a Cubs fan, not a White Sox fan. So I'm glad we've got two Cubs fans on here. Um, you know, to be honest, Paul, I, I, I've thought for a while the relationship was, as you said, in free fall, and I've had trouble finding the floor. Um, I'm not sure there is a floor. I think on the Chinese side, there's a lot of hope um, and to my mind, it's really the triumph of hope over experience that there'll be a wholesale reset between the US and China once a new administration comes in. I don't think that's likely to be the case. And I think the reason for that is a lot of what's happening is largely structural, not cyclical. Um, and I think a lot has changed, even in just a five to six year period. Um, I've said elsewhere that if you rewind the clock just back to 2014, it's remarkable how much the relationship has changed. In 2014, uh, the US and China were negotiating a bilateral investment treaty. Um, the US and China had just reached a major climate agreement to control hydrofluorocarbons. And in really what passed for the last major pandemic, which was the Ebola outbreak in West Africa, American and Chinese medical and scientific personnel were working side by side next to each other in Sierra Leone. Uh, including in laboratory facilities. So here we are in a, the worst uh, health crisis in over 100 years, the worst economic crisis prospectively since the Great Depression. And they're not only not working in common ways, they're not really working in complementary ways. And in some ways, the United States and China are actively obstructing each other. So that begs the question of why that's happened. And I think what's happened is partly psychological, but largely, as I said, structural. If you think about the trajectory of the relationship, and you've heard me say this before, um, security and political competition has been baked in even back to 1972. In 1972, when Richard Nixon went to Beijing, the US and China were fighting a proxy war in Vietnam. Uh, China was crawling out of the culture revolution. There were obvious differences of political system, ideology, clashing security concepts. But after China joined the WTO in 2001, and even before when economic intercourse began in the 1980s, um, economic integration largely proceeded on a parallel track from this security competition that was a feature of the relationship. And I think for a lot of people, economic integration was supposed to somehow mitigate that security competition. But that hasn't happened at all. In fact, the security competition is getting worse from the South China Sea to the Taiwan Strait, all around China's periphery, the US and China are uh, viewing each other as security rivals, strategic rivals. But now economic integration is actually being refracted through the prism of security competition. And I think that's really the core change. If you think about flows of capital, flows of people, flows of technology, flows of data, the things that integrate the two economies, um, increasingly on both sides, but certainly on the American side, um, these are viewed as security challenges, uh, not just uh, commercial public goods. Um, why control the flow of technology to China? Why reduce the exposure of American entities to co-innovation partnerships with Chinese entities? Because increasingly people in the United States and on a bipartisan basis view those things as a security challenge and a security problem. And if you look at it that way, then the positive sum logic of economic integration gives way to the zero summy logic of security competition. I think it's hard to imagine that changing anytime soon. And in fact, and maybe this flows into the next phase of the conversation, mm -hmm. I actually see the Biden people as systematizers, institutionalists, 
and multilateralists. And so in that sense, some of the tools that the Trump team has pioneered, the use of export controls, the, US of the use of uh, administrative instruments to control the flow of Chinese capital into uh, technology-related businesses here, I actually think they're going to find those tools appealing, and they will use them in less ad hoc, more systematic ways than the Trump team did. And so the question that we have to ask is, uh, is this just something that we have to accept, or is it possible not to reset the relationship, but to find ways that the two countries can coordinate, at least on scary transnational threats, despite and notwithstanding that security tension and competition that exists between them. I have a few ideas about that, um, okay. but uh, I think we need a change of administration to try to sort of set the table a little bit differently. Thank you, that's very helpful. Um, overall, you do not expect a reset, and I, I would agree with that. Uh, you point out that, that many of the challenges between the US and China and the bilateral relationship are structural in nature, not cyclical, and so are here with us to stay, regardless of, of who is president. Um, and of course, your point on you know, the security competition is getting worse and also being refracted through the economic prism uh, presents real challenges to the US and China. Um, there, uh, you mentioned at the beginning, there is some hope perhaps that a Biden administration might be able to work with the Chinese side to get US-China relations on better footing. Um, and we can talk about, you know, what, what it, it won't be easy uh, and we're not gonna revert back to pre-Trump, the golden days of US-China back. Uh, this is a new dynamic going on right now. But let me hear a little bit from Dr. Xiaotao in terms of the Chinese perspective I'd like to get a sense from you, you know, are we uh, still at the lowest point since 1972, which is what you mentioned last spring, um, and also your, your views uh, on how a Biden victory will impact uh, the U.S.-China relationship going forward and broader Chinese views on that issue as well. Okay, great, uh, Paul, and it's so nice to uh, be here and see you again virtually, uh, not in person, and I do hope to see you pretty soon back in Beijing in person, you know, uh, get up back to your Carnegie Center uh, for some, uh, some interesting discussion. Now, the question now, whether it's still at arguable is the lowest, I would now cross out the word arguable. It's absolutely at the lowest point since 1972. Now, one indication of this uh, lowest point is look at the Gallup polls. Uh, I, I know uh, the get, polling industry now is getting devastated because of the, you know, the last election. Uh, many people are questioning uh, and the uh, uh, veracity of these uh, polling numbers, but if you look at the Gallup data uh, in, two, uh, in February 2020, that's just a short after the outbreak of uh, the pandemic, you had uh, a record low number of Americans who reported the favorable views of China. This is the lowest point, 33%. This is a lower than any point ever recorded by uh, Gallup. Now, the opposite side is that 67% of Americans now had unfavorable view of China. This was the highest since ever. Donald Trump, excuse me, Gallup has uh, down their surveys, right? So this is one indication of the lowest point. The second is look at the closing of the consulates in Chengdu and in Houston. And then basically now there's no uh, bilateral people-to-people -people exchanges. The Chinese, many of the Chinese students now are stranded here back in China because they could not get their visas to the United States for their graduate school. And they should have been there, you know, for the uh, past semester. So this is another indication. Uh, and, 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 and thirdly, look at um, most recently, uh, there's uh, a lot of report here um, that, you know, President Donald Trump may try to do some surprise moves on Taiwan. And that could be a, uh, one of his last surprises uh, before uh, he moves out of the White House. And so when you put everything together, I think you cannot get a more uh, dark picture of the U.S.-China relationship. And so like Evan said, you know, there's no going back uh, before you know, Donald Trump. Uh, there's no um, hope, I think. Even within China here, you ask me, you know, what is the sense here in Beijing? I think the general consensus, you look at Chinese news media reports, um, uh, the assessment is uh, pretty much what Evan just said. There's certainly some hope that the new administration would bring about some changes, but the hope was not really high. 
uh, like he said, you know, there's so many structural factors that pretty much determine that the relationship would, would remain more or less the same. Um, I would uh, add a few uh, more details to, uh, you know, um, uh, support this kind of uh, a consensus view. One is that Joe Biden certainly did not campaign on a foreign policy. Um, and more exactly, you know, he campaigned as a kind of a domestic president. And his hands now, right now, are fully preoccupied with all these uh, pressing domestic issues, racial justice, uh, immigration reform, uh, uh, economic recovery, et cetera. And then there's this uh, uh, um, Atlantic Alliance, et cetera. So I think you know, China would be largely uh, put aside uh, on the back burner. And maybe um, it's, it's after two years after this, that it's at the uh, midterm election in 2022, that would be the time maybe uh, the new administration would have a clear China policy strategy. So I think that's the general assessment here. We are not expecting a very uh, significant reset in the relationship, even though there's certainly some hope that the current tensions could calm down a little bit. There would be uh, fewer uh, like finger pointing and there would be uh, no more like sanctions um, uh, by either side against the government officials and others. And so look at today, there's this uh, very alarming report by Chinese media that the US uh, uh, federal law enforcement officials now are questioning the uh, flight attendants and the crews of Chinese airlines who arrived in the United States and uh, asking them, you know, why did you join the Communist Party of China? Now, these are very pro, uh, provocative actions by the US federal government. And this could lead to further retaliation from our side. Um, so again, let me stop here. I think you know. Yeah, let me uh, let me follow up with a let me follow up on that. Um, you mentioned that in China, there's a, a a realistic expectation. I think you've described it as a realistic expectation that the relationship will largely remain the same under a Biden administration. Not a big reset. Um, that you know is similar to what Evan said. Um, but are there unrealistic expectations that, um, you know, that, I mean, I think you understand that, but what about the broader Chinese public? Are they thinking that a Joe Biden will somehow manage to get the relationship on much better footing uh, for the U.S. and China? Or is this a broad perspective across the country, in your view, in terms of public opinion and the rest? Uh, I would say the consensus I just mentioned, it's largely shared at least within policy uh, analysts, uh, scholars, uh, this community, within the elite community. Uh, but if you say, what about the general public? Are they also following very closely? Uh, do they also have a similarly realistic, uh, realistic expectations? I think so. Now you, you, you compare this year's election with 2016. Back four years ago, there was really kind of a euphoria, uh, whether good or bad, about the election of Donald Trump, because the assumption at that time was that, hey, we have a businessman, now we can, somebody we can do business with. So there was, within the elites and within the public, I would say, there was this, quote, unrealistic expectations. Uh, like, you know, some of these prominent Chinese scholars have written on New York Times and other very prominent authors saying, uh, Donald Trump is an easy to deal with. You know, this is a godsend, you know, from Americans. And so China now has a huge opportunity you know, to rise strategically. This year, my sense is that there's no Chinese media. You look at Chinese Twitter, Chinese uh, Weibo. There's no such kind of a euphoria about a new administration coming in. Evan, Xiaotao uh, mentioned uh, concerns over the next uh, 50 or so days before the inauguration, that there may be some surprise moves by the Trump administration. You've talked, Evan, about this period of time as, in, in your view, could be potentially pretty volatile. What are you expecting uh, prior to the inauguration? And then I wanna talk about the first year and I wanna get a sense from both of you what you expect from the US Evan and from China in the first year of the Biden administration. But first, let's let's focus in on the next 50 days. Well, I'm not expecting anything. I mean, I've, I've learned a while ago not to predict anything about the Trump administration. I mean, I think, you know, you got two kinds of 
people. You've got kind of burn the house down people. <laughs> uh, and then you've got people who would like to box in and constrain their successors in the Biden administration. And there was a spokesperson for the National Security Council who made that pretty explicit in a press statement, essentially said, we're going to take steps over the next 50 days that are designed to make it politically difficult for the, the Biden administration to uh, do a wholesale reset with China. But as I said, I don't think there's anybody in the Biden administration that wants to do a wholesale reset with China. And so the question is really uh, how they navigate the political constraints and opportunities that might exist uh, given the strategic challenges with China. If you just think about what an agenda for coordination with China would look like. It's not, it's not that hard to conceive of intellectually. The problem is largely political, right? Stop the pandemic, reboot growth, avert environmental catastrophe. I'll say that again. Stop the pandemic, reboot growth, avert environmental catastrophe. Those are things that the United States and China ought to find some ways to have complementary approaches on, not because they're in love or they're buddies or they're friends, but because they have completely selfish and self-interested reasons for wanting to do those things. And I think there are probably people coming in with the Biden team who certainly on the third of those avert environmental catastrophes see opportunities, for example, to use the climate issue, uh, not for a reset, but to uh, find an issue around which the United States and China can coordinate. So now if you rewind to your question, you think about the next 50 days, are there steps that the Trump administration might take that would box in the possibility of a new Biden administration working with China on those? Not really, because the constraints there are largely political. It's a question of how much the new administration has the stomach for uh, taking political risks, making the case to the American people that it's worth trying to coordinate with China on these things. Most of the steps that the Trump administration is taking to supposedly box in its successor are, are not by law. Uh, they're by executive order and by administrative fiat. And if you live by executive order, as you know, Paul, because you worked in government, you can die by executive order. You, if you do it by executive order, you can reverse it. So to me, the question is really, what are the Biden people going to have the political stomach for? And then more importantly, because we haven't talked about Chinese agency here, you know, how much are the Chinese prepared to risk uh, to try to get the relationship into a better place. I mean, it's worth reflecting for a minute on why so many Americans have soured on the U.S.-China relationship, including, for example, people in the business community who know China very well, who had a stake in a positive and productive U.S.-China relationship. That community, from financial services firms to multinational companies, had really soured uh, on the U.S.-China relationship. It was, you know, almost 20 years since China had come in the WTO, and they were still waiting for structural reform in China. You lose the business community, you have to conclude that something's happening here on the U.S. side that China bears some responsibility for. So I think, yeah, there are things that could happen in the next 50 days, security gestures, adding more Chinese companies to the entity list, taking more steps to make uh, working with certain kinds of Chinese companies toxic for American firms, but those things can all be reversed administratively. It's going to be a question of whether the Biden team wants to, thinks it's desirable to, or as I said in answer to your first question, actually wants to use those same tools that the Trump team has pioneered for them, but to do it in a much more systematic and institutionalized way. And I'll bet the temptation is there. I would expect the Biden team to use the entity list, to use export controls, to try to extraterritorialize the application of some of those U.S. export controls in some of the same ways. I don't think they'll find it unappealing. Um, some of the tools that the Trump team is using or the strategic logic that the Trump team has. It's just that on some of those things, like dealing with the pandemic and rebooting growth, I can, I can see the way toward um, not uh, joint approaches with China, but at least self-interested and complementary ones. And the question is, how do they manage the politics of that? And do the Chinese meet them somewhere in the middle? That's very helpful. Xiatao, um, you know, Evan makes the point that, uh, you know, China probably bears responsibility for the deterioration and the downturn in the relationship. Um, you know, you see growing concerns from the United States and a range of issues. You also see common concern uh, between the United States and countries in Europe and other countries in Asia. Um, but of course, the narratives that we hear from China is that this is all about the Thucydides trap and this is all about China getting stronger and the U.S simply trying to contain or block China's rise. This does not bode well for the first year of a Biden administration, because it sounds like what Evan is saying is that there are positive steps that China could take that could potentially improve the relationship. A recognition by China that it also uh, has agency 
in the US-China relationship and bears responsibility for the deterioration of the relationship and can take steps, positive steps, which would help a Biden administration, especially if the, if the Senate maintains a Republican majority. Uh, and given the growing you know, bipartisan consensus and concerns on the challenges from China, it's gonna be a difficult environment, it sounds like, for the Biden administration to do much, many bold steps or proactive steps on China. It might require this time, instead of, you know, China is normally reactive to US policy uh, before deciding what to do. It may take China to be more proactive. As you look out into the first year of a US-China relationship with uh, Joe Biden as president, is that in the cards? What is China's posture going to be in the first year? How will China, re how will China deal with a new Biden administration? Will it sit back and react and wait? Or will it be proactive, creative, and think about ways to improve the relationship with steps from China? Well, Paul, uh, you know, my understanding of the term agency, uh, uh, you know, I, I think the implied meaning from what you and Evan just used this term is, uh, and I could be wrong, is that, you know, China should recognize that there is something that it has done wrong. Uh, you look around like the public opinion polls you just mentioned, you know, it's overwhelmingly negative in European countries and look at uh, Southeast Asia, some of these uh, neighbors. Uh, this, this kind of agency, I, I would uh, caution, I would use the word warn, that do not interpret this as a Chinese willingness to compromise, to say that, you know, we uh, did something wrong and therefore uh, we'd, we would be more willing to uh, uh, reach out to our American counterparts and say, what do you want? Is there anything we can do uh, to alleviate the current uh, situation? Uh, I think that would be uh, very dangerous to make that assumption. Um, you, you mentioned about cooperation. Uh, Evan also mentioned about number one is a, a cooperation in fight against the COVID-19. But it seems to me that in both countries, and, and it's politically at least uh, tem very tempted, uh, tempting and desirable to, uh, to make this a vaccine nationalism. I think Donald Trump is obviously making this uh, a national pride for Americans, you know, we are the world's number one, and we will develop the vaccine the first in the world. And I think that there's also a strong reason for us to do this you know, as the world's number one. So vaccine nationalism could actually prevent the two countries from cooperating with each other. And this is, in fact, is happening right now. The two countries, I don't know, but I was told that you know, the two countries actually exchanged data and worked with each other uh, at the WHO and other institutions. Okay, now back to the question about you know what we can do. I think uh, there just is be, this just be, willingness. Shit, just to be clear on agency, at least what I mean uh, by the term agency, is not uh, only a recognition that mm -hmm. that there are steps that China has taken that have contributed to the downturn, but I think it's more that the trajectory of the U.S.-China relationship is not only determined by what the U.S. does. Yeah. That steps that China takes, decisions that China makes, good ones, bad ones, all influence the trajectory of the U.S.-China relationship. And I think there's a view in the U.S. that because China tends to be more reactive in mm -hmm. dealing with the U.S.-China relationship, that there is, um, you know, that, that the Chinese side is not recognizing that things that it does or doesn't do in many cases also impacts the trajectory of the relationship. And so in the first year, positive steps from China, um, suggesting where there's room for compromise, where the two sides can begin to solve problems, um, proactive steps from China could contribute in a positive way to the trajectory of the relationship. And that's, that's what I mean uh, by agency. Of course, we can turn to Evan after you're finished to see his views on this particular question. Okay, okay, I got you. Uh, I understand that, you know, uh, oftentimes there's this perception that what we do here, uh, we, we um, uh, you know, from at least outside points of view, uh, Beijing does not really uh, take much into consideration how its own actions are perceived outside China. Uh, I think that's your point. So what China does and what China does not do 
can also have a huge impact on how other people responded to and reacted to China. And I, um, I, I think I got you right. But the uh, uh, issue here, what I would like to say that, well, China has its own logic of political actions within China and on the international stage. And so if you uh, would like China to change its own behavior, use the word proactively instead of reactively, you have to provide a kind of a strong incentive, either domestic or international, for Chinese leadership to adopt that decision. And so in that sense, we need to kind of uh, go halfway towards each other. Uh, I would be very much surprised that you would see some major proactive action on the Chinese side. Um, uh, I think we would be very cautious. Um, at least that's my own sense. Evan, do you want to respond to any of this? Sure. Well, I think let's just put the normative question about culpability and responsibility. Who's right? Who's wrong? Let's put that to the side. Let's just treat this as an analytical question. I mean, as an analytical question, um, sure, China's going to do what China's going to do. China's going to make those decisions in its self-interest, but there are consequences uh, and there are realities that result from that. Um, and I think a lot of these questions are not intellectual. They're largely political. And China has debates about policy choices. And there are perfectly good self-interested reasons domestically in China for doing things, um, particularly on the economic side that would have positioned China better uh, for a more salutary relationship with certain kinds of constituencies in the United States. Let's just take something like opening the financial market in China, right? Um, there are plenty of reform-oriented voices in China who believe that China has very self-interested reasons for doing that. If you want to have, if you want to be a world-class global financial center, you want to have best-in-class global financial services firms. So for many, many years, having something like equity caps or forcing global financial services firms into joint ventures prevented China from attracting many of those kinds of firms. So when leading global financial services firms would argue that China ought to make a policy decision to get rid of equity caps, uh, remove joint venture requirements. Um, there were plenty of people in China who understood the self-interested rationale for that. But uh, up until recently when uh, you know, financial market opening got another push uh, in China, um, I think there was a lot of frustration among those kinds of firms here in the United States and globally. So if you put aside this normative question of what's right and what's wrong, and you just think of it as an analytical question, and even Xietaf, you want to think about it selfishly, what's right for China, what's not right for China. There were plenty of decisions that China could have made, should have made, might have made, but didn't make that actually had the net result again, analytically, of constituencies in the United States that have been extremely supportive of a productive U.S.-China relationship souring uh, on the general trajectory of U.S.-China ties. So where we are now is that when I think about the big constituencies here in the United States that were most supportive of a productive relationship, foreign and national security policy elites, big multinational corporations, big financial services firms, um, a lot of them had really soured on the relationship. And that's what I meant earlier when I said, if you start to lose the business community, you ought to be self-reflective about that. I think some of my friends in China are not, in my view, as self-reflective as they could be about how we, how we got to this point. And it's true, many of my friends in China also say the Americans should be a little more self-reflective. That's fine, but, um, but if we just, without reflecting on responsibility and culpability, we are where we are. Uh, and I think if we don't wanna just engage in what uh, my boss at Carnegie, Bill Burns, calls lazy fatalism, and we wanna do something about this, then we need to understand that both sides need to take steps uh, to right the ship. And that includes decisions that I, I don't think the Chinese side is making. And, and as I said, those, those could be completely self-interested decisions. It's not a favor that the Chinese government has to do for American stakeholders. Um, but um, I don't see that happening right now. And so uh, maybe both sides need to be under different management, but, but, uh, but, but some policy change is going to have to happen on the Chinese side too. That's what I'm Let's continue on this theme. Of, thank you for that. Let, let's continue on this theme of the first year. And, you know, um, I recall when Donald Trump went to China in 2017 for his uh, state visit, and he was asked a question uh, by the press in the press uh, event. 
And he said he didn't uh, blame President Xi or Chinese leaders um, for China taking advantage of the US over trade and economics. He blamed former US presidents and administrations. And um, you know, my former boss, Condi Rice, Dr. Rice was asked, did she take offense to that? Um, and she said, no, because Donald Trump has a point. We've been trying to address many of the same problems that the Trump administration is trying to fix with China. And we were unsuccessful. The Obama administration was unsuccessful. And now the Trump administration is trying to address these problems. So it seems to me that even before you get to the question of can the US and China cooperate, a bigger question is can the US and China find a mode where we can begin to solve problems? Starting, of course, with some of the lower hanging fruit, if there is lower hanging fruit. My own view is that this would have the biggest positive impact uh, in the United States even more than the issue of cooperating because there are mixed views about whether cooperation with China is in US interest. I have my own views on this question, but nevertheless, it seems to me that in the first year of the Biden administration, if there can be a demonstrated effort between the US and China to actually solve problems um, where you know, both sides are putting ideas on the table and showing where compromise and concessions can be made to make progress, I think that would have a big impact. If that is true, um, I'd like to just get a sense from both of you, starting with Xiatao, where, where are the greatest possibilities for the United States and China to begin to solve some problems in the relationship? And where is, you know, where is it that China feels, um, the Chinese leadership feels, that the, there is the most potential uh, to make compromise and concessions to uh, advance the U.S.-China relationship by beginning to solve some problems? Uh, I would start with uh, this people-to-people -people exchanges, like one of the high-level dialogues uh, that was initiated under the Barack Obama administration, which was now kind of merged under just the two tracks. Um, I learned that there are over a hundred such kind of uh, channels. Um, I emphasize people-to-people -people because it's not just about students going to the United States or American students coming to China. It's about keeping open the channels of communication, uh, track two and others like just what we are doing right now, right? And second, if you have these uh, people to uh, like relax your visa restrictions on Chinese students and you don't sanction Chinese government officials uh, and allow Chinese uh, scholars, and I'm, I'm sure Paul, you know these stories that some of the people that you and I know very well, they get very up by what the, uh, experienced at the U.S. airports and they were questioned and they were searched. And these kind of uh, encounters really turn many of them uh, away from, um, you know, a more, um, you know, accurate uh, reading and understanding of U.S.-China relations and, uh, uh, you know. So I think, you know, if we can start with these tiny things, and that would be a, a very positive step. I think, you know, frankly, my hope for the Biden administration is that, uh, rather than beginning with U.S.-China relationship, it's going to take a larger look at American positioning in Asia uh, and look at where the U.S. is in Asia. My former boss in the State Department, Richard Armitage, used to say that if the United States wanted to get policies toward China right, it needed to get policies toward Asia right. Um, and I think, uh, particularly on the trade side, there's a lot that the United States needs to be reflective on. I mean, trade rules in Asia are now being set by two agreements, the Comprehensive and Progressive Trans-Pacific Partnership and the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership that don't include the United States. And since I'd like the United States to be an economic rule setter and not just a security provider, I'm hoping that the new administration is gonna take a step back and before it gets to the US-China relationship, is gonna take a look at first how the United States is positioned in Asia, but second, doesn't make every American relationship in Asia derivative of what it's trying to do with China. Um, Paul asked you and I, Xiatao, the question of uh, where is a, a, a reboot possible. Um, personally, I think it's on the economic front. And I think in, on the American side, there's an intuitive sense that there's something that's not right about the US-China economic relationship. President Trump focused very heavily on the bilateral trade deficit, particularly in goods. 
Um, but that can be a little bit misleading. It's true that China sells more to the United States than vice versa. But I think for American companies and for particularly growth companies here that see opportunities in the China market, it's not sales and service. It's the across and behind the border structural constraints in China that they face that they'd like to see change. So I think, you know, I said before the Biden team were multilateralists. I think one thing that I'm hopeful that they'll do is work with Japan and with the European Union uh, to try to come up with a coordinated negotiating approach with China, including, by the way, jointly withholding access to their markets to China in exchange for negotiated structural concessions across and behind the border in China that, in my view, would be self-interestedly good for China by uh, changing the economic structure there and creating more opportunities for competition, for private business, for foreign best-in-class firms, but also would really begin to change the way American and global firms have operated in the Chinese market. So that kind of a structured economic negotiation, I think is something that I would hope the administration would do. Uh, and it would really reset the terms of the economic relationship in a way that I think would strike many Americans as more intuitively fair. A lot of people here ask, for instance, why can Chinese companies invest in sectors in the United States that American firms can't invest in in China? Um, and you, you can give me all the political and legal reasons why that's the case, but it just strikes people here as being unfair. So I think, I think the economic area is one reason, one area where China ought to have a self-interest in, in making some changes that would begin to repair that intuitive sense of unfairness here. Uh, you know, I, I, I totally agree Go with ahead. you that, yeah, economic front is perhaps uh, uh, one of the uh, low-hanging fruit, but I didn't mention economic front is because I have just a very strong sense, you know, uh, you, you look at the back of the uh, past and since China joined the WTO in 2000, right? Bilateral economic interdependence has been increasing exponentially. So even with the trade war, you still see a lot of economic interactions between the two countries. But the problem with the economic ties is that no matter how extensive these ties are, as long as you have this deep-rooted ideological, whatever you use the word, bias, if you look at China or China look at the United States from the ideological lens, and if you still have this uh, geopolitical strategic component there, and so even if you have this extensive economic interdependence, that would still not bring about a, sub a substantial increase in strategic trust. So you look at China, Japan, you look at China, South Korea, look at China, European Union, right? So, so again, back to your point, I agree with you, you know, this is perhaps the starting place, but I just uh, suspect you know, how much that an increase in economic interdependence would help reboot strategic trust between the two countries. Um, we're going to turn to audience questions, but I just wanna add a couple points here. I missed a lot of what was said, but I do agree with Evan uh, that the economic and trade issues are the right issues to start with. And from a Chinese perspective, I would think that if, if there really is the view that this is all about the Thucydides trap and that the US as the global superpower is worried about China's rise, uh, and that's why we're seeing tension in the relationship and the rest, which I don't agree with, but if that is the Chinese perspective, then looking around at Europe and broader Asia and seeing where the common concerns are about China's policies, about China's behavior, uh, about Chinese actions would be a good place to start because the narrative of the Thucydides trap could not be applied to all of those places. And it seems to me that as you look at rising anti-China global sentiment around the world, it would be a good place to start where you see a lot of common concerns about Chinese policies and on the economic and trade, there seem to be some alignment uh, outside of China on those issues. So with the last 20 or 50, I guess 15 minutes now, we're gonna turn to audience questions. We've got one from Alejandra Pena on the uh, Belt and Road Initiative. Um, his question or her question is what is the US, what will the US position towards the BRIB in the Biden administration? Will it? Will it shift? But I want to start by asking uh, Xiatao uh, how we can expect to see the Belt and Road uh, proceed given the disruption of the global pandemic, given the fact that China is now trying to restart its economy. Uh, will all of this uh, and some of the geopolitical headwinds that China is facing, will this have an impact on the BRI? So let me start with 
Shatow on views of the BRI going forward, and then turn to Evan on the question of what the Biden, how the Biden administration might deal with the BRI. Well, the Biden, uh, excuse me, uh, the pandemic obviously has a very uh, negative impact on the progress of China's uh, BRI. And, you know, borders are closed and many of these uh, people are stranded, you know, there's uh, no longer goods uh, crossing the border. Uh, but I would expect after the uh, end of the pandemic, which could be as soon as the next summer, uh, that, you know, there would be a resumption of this uh, cross-border flow of people and goods. Uh, again, I would say the BRI is widely perceived outside China as a kind of a Chinese uh, geopolitical game. Um, I, I would say perhaps this is just a Chinese way of reaching out on the global stage for its own economic uh, interdependence to export Chinese products, to bring in some uh, raw materials from outside the world, anything that China needs for its own economic production, modernization. So maybe um, there's been too much reading of this BRI. Uh, but of course, I understand why some countries are so concerned. Uh, they look at Chinese uh, uh, investment and there's a so-called uh, debt trap, etc. cetera. Um, um, uh, maybe, uh, again, so I would just uh, say, uh, don't overread what China has been doing uh, along the uh, BRI initiative. Thank you. Evan? Yeah, so in, in 2006, when I was the Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for Central Asia, it was seven years before the Belt and Road was launched in 2013. Xi Jinping was not in power. And the Asian Development Bank and the World Bank were incredibly active on road projects, power line projects. There was uh, you know, a decade long history, even at that point of connectivity projects in Eurasia that was closely associated with the international financial institutions. And China itself was involved in some of that, working to try to push for gas and oil pipelines from central Eurasia, also had an onshore production sharing agreement in Turkmenistan, the only one that a foreign country had at that time. And I'm telling you that not to relate the history, but to make the point that China did not in fact invent Asian connectivity. It did not originate only in 2013 with the Belt and Road. And the idea of Eurasian connectivity did not pop out of Xi Jinping head, like Athena being born from Zeus's head. There's a long history. So when people say, what should the US reaction be to the Belt and Road? I hate that formulation because it presumes that China somehow initiated this process and the US should react to it. What I would like from the Biden administration is for them to take a longer step back and situate American interests, not as a reaction to the Belt and Road, but in the context of whether the United States has an interest in promoting connectivity uh, across the globe and in Eurasia in particular, and then what the United States role ought to be on that. What are the tools the United States brings or doesn't bring to the table and who should the American partners be, including but not limited to the international financial institutions where the United States and, for example, its Japanese ally have preponderant voting weight and voting share. Um, the problem the Americans have is because they're thinking about this reactively to China, they're making apples to apples comparisons. Those are bad comparisons. The United States does not have state-backed banks through which it can do state-backed policy lending, notwithstanding the reforms that have created the Development Finance Corporation. If I were the United States, I would step back, as I said, think about what the American interests are in connectivity, and then I would leverage uniquely American strengths. Uniquely American strengths are connections to the global capital markets, best in class financial services firms, connections to the international financial institutions, the ability to mobilize global capital. Those are the things that the United States can bring to the table. And I think on the demand side, countries in Central Asia and South Asia in Southeast Asia, places even where American firms aren't active would welcome that kind of an American role. So my view whenever I get asked this question is to say, let's just put the Belt and Road to the side. China's gonna do what it's gonna do on the Belt and Road. But I think the United States needs to position itself with third countries as a supporter of connectivity uh, in a way that leverages uniquely American strengths and showcases how the United States can make a contribution to their growth and their growth and development. The problem with the Belt and Road, frankly, is it doesn't leave enough of the value added in a lot of these countries. If you think about transit in Central Asia, just having Kazakhstanis stand there and watch the trains go by, waving as they move from China to Europe, that doesn't leave enough of the value added in Kazakhstan itself. And so that's the kind of thing the United States should be promoting and where the U.S. can leverage some strengths. That's what I'd like to see from the Biden administration. 
Evan, we have a question from a viewer around your most recent article. This was part of the Carnegie Compendium uh, series called The Global Views of a Biden Presidency, and you wrote a piece on U.S.-China. In the piece, you mentioned it's unlikely for Biden to soften Trump's approach to China, as we've discussed already. Um, but you noted that the sweet spot for Biden would be to pursue competition without confrontation. Uh, and the audience member uh, asked, could you elaborate on this observation? What does competition without confrontation mean in practice? And are there past examples that can be drawn on here? Well, to be honest, that's a phrase I stole from Eli Ratner, who's an advisor to, uh, he was a deputy national security advisor to, to Mr. Biden when he was the vice president. So I assume he might go back into the new administration. I like that phrase because as I've said, I think one of the challenges the Trump administration had is that they were very focused on firing off nasty grams at Beijing on a daily and even sometimes twice daily basis, but not thinking hard about how to strengthen the American position in Asia. I think, as I said at the beginning, and as Xiao was also, I think, agreeing with, U.S.-China relationship is just explicitly competitive at this point. We have different ideologies. We have different political systems. We have clashing security concepts in the first island chain, frankly, all around Asia. But, um, but there's a difference between what I would call competition and not just confrontation, but what I prefer to call enmity. Um, in a competitive relationship, you try to best the other guy by investing in yourself. You try to make your firms better. You try to make your company stronger. You try to develop technology faster and better. And we, you try to invest in your relationships. Um, when you try to attenuate the other guy's progress and you're actively trying to obstruct them, that's not competition, that's enmity. The U.S.-China relationship right now looks more like managed enmity to me than strategic competition. Uh, the United States and China are actively obstructing each other, but they're doing it within some guardrails. So to me, competition without confrontation means the United States trying to strengthen its position, not just as a security provider in Asia, but as an economic rule setter, a standard setter, a norm giver. Um, that's not just about the U.S.-China relationship. That's about getting the U.S. posture in Asia right, investing in alliances, coming back into trade agreements. I'm not sure the Biden administration is going to do that, but I, I hope they will. Um, and if the U.S. gets those things right while investing in its own competitiveness at home uh, through education policies, investment policies, tax policies, uh, uh, technology and innovation policies, those are the kinds of things that would make the United States much more competitive. And so uh, the U.S. would be in a better position to compete with China as China becomes stronger and tries to assert itself more in Asia, sometimes in ways that the United States isn't going to like, uh, than just uh, making speeches that are highly confrontational, but actually don't position the United States better for what I view as this inevitable competition. So that's what I meant in that line that Eli has, which is competition without competition confrontation. I think that's, that's, that, that, that appeals to me rhetorically because it gets it, this idea that the United States doesn't need to refract everything through the U.S.-China prism. I hope that makes sense. Yeah. It sounds a little bit like uh, what our co former colleague Jake Sullivan, who's going in as national security advisor, when he says the U.S. ought to focus on how it can run faster instead of trying to slow China down. Um, on the question of trade, uh, which you mentioned, um, You've written it's plausible that the U.S. would not ever again do a major multilateral trade agreement. Uh, of course, we've seen the recent signing of RCEP, the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership, and we see some interest apparently from China in joining the, the, the CPTPP. Um, what would that mean for the potential of U.S. economic integration in the Asia-Pacific? Um, and how would though the RCEP and China's interest in TPP change that calculation? Over to no. you, Evan, just to follow up on your asking. Well, I don't, I don't yeah. know whether that's serious or rhetorical. I mean, I think the bar would be awfully high for China to join the trans the, the, the CPTPP in terms of the, as I said, the structural reforms behind the border that China would need to make. Yeah. Uh, there's a, there's a self-interested case for that. If you think about WTO accession, um, WTO accession happened in 2001 in the late 1990s when Zhu Rongji as prime minister of China was using WTO as a lever to make difficult political choices, including laying off 30 to 40 million workers out of state-owned enterprises to get China ready for accession. That was an external lever that actually helped to promote reforms in 
China. So I could, I could see some reform-oriented people in China using the CPTPP that way, but I don't think that's the trajectory China's really on. So I don't know how serious it is. I, I see that as more rhetorical. Um, frankly, if you flip to the American side, I think the bar is high here too. Um, people make the strategic case for it. President Obama used to say, you know, if China, the U.S. doesn't write the rules, China's going to write the rules. But the political consensus at the retail level in either party isn't really there for joining these kinds of big trade deals. So the bar is pretty high, too. And if the U.S. came back, uh, it would regard the current agreement as the floor. Uh, from which to negotiate up, whereas many parties to the agreement were regarded as a ceiling. So I'm not sure either the United States or China is going to come back into that agreement soon either. As an American, I don't care that much about what that means for China. For the United States, I think the problem is that the United States is fading from Asia as an economic rule setter and standard setter. And to me, that's a problem because American leadership in that part of the world shouldn't just be based on a security pillar. It's not a problem for American business. Business can adapt to whoever sets the rules and whatever the rules are. But I think the U.S has a self-interested reason for wanting to be a kind of norm giver and rule writer. And I see the U.S. fading from that space. So if the U.S. can't do another big multilateral deal, it's going to have to look at other ways to set those standards and norms, technical standards, uh, bilateral agreements, sectoral agreements. And people like Bob Zellick, my former boss, and, and others have, have made the case for trying to think in a much more diverse way about trade policy and also investment policy. And I think some of those ideas ought to be on the table as well. Thank you for that, Evan. Um, Shetau, we've got a question uh, from Bill Bishop, um, who is the author of the very popular newsletter on China, Cynicism, uh, and a good friend. Back to the question about, you know, the narratives around the downturn in the U.S.-China relationship and thinking about, you know, how to solve problems in the first year and beyond of uh, the U.S.-China administration. His question is, are you uh, saying that China, as, as you an, uh, analyze why we've seen this major downturn in relations, are you suggesting that China hasn't done anything wrong or, or contributed to that downturn in the United States-China uh, relationship? In other words, you know, what, in your view, are things that China has done uh, that has contributed, if any? Well, um, if there's one thing, uh, you know, there, there could be many factors. Uh, uh, one thing that I think, you know, within the analytical circle that people are beginning to talk about seriously and reflecting upon is the so-called wolf warrior diplomacy. And, and you see uh, most recently that's on display again uh, between the spat uh, between the Chinese uh, Minister of Foreign Affairs spokesperson and the uh, Australian Foreign, uh, Prime Minister Scott Morrison. Um, I think there's a lot of soul searching within China. People say maybe we should have uh, adopted a different way of conveying the same message, but not in such a, a, a kind of a wolfish, confrontational way to our Western counterparts. Um, I think that's one area where you, you, you could make the argument that we could have done better. Now, second, uh, about COVID-19, I don't know why the, uh, the CNN today ran a big headline story criticizing China's early uh, responses to the COVID-19. Um, these things, I think, you know, uh, there, there's a lot of debate, you know, analytical or political, like Evan just said, right? But analytically, I think, you know, uh, it, it would be futile, number one, to, to begin with, to say like China should be blamed for its only official uh, initial responses. Second is that, uh, China has tried its best. I, you know, in, in our view, locked down the whole city of Wuhan. So I, I just cannot understand why there's still so much interest and pressure outside China to blame what China did in the first uh, couple of weeks during the COVID-19. So in a word, I think you know, China could have done something better, but China would not be the, really the major factor for what has been gone wrong between the two countries. Okay, we've got one minute, um, and I'm just going to ask you to pull out your crystal balls uh, and make a prediction uh, in, in a very brief way. Uh, in one year from now, where will the what will the state of the U.S.-China relationship be? Xiaotao? Probably the same as we're seeing today. Uh, I, I don't see a huge incentive for Joe Biden to lift all these restrictions on China that has been imposed by Donald Trump. Evan? 
I think there are two areas that will be significantly changed. One, I expect that the restrictions on scholarly and student exchanges will be reversed uh, wholesale by the Biden administration. I'd be surprised if they don't. And second, I think the climate change issue will be back front and center in the US-China relationship. Beyond those two issues, I think the structural factors that we talked about earlier in the conversation will still be with us. This will be a highly competitive relationship. And I think if the Chinese side is expecting a kind of reset, they're going to be sorely disappointed. And the question I have is really when they're disappointed, how does the, the Chinese side react to that? Uh, because uh, if they see more continuity than change from Trump to Biden, do we just end, end up back in the same downward spiral we're in now? Um, uh, I think it's possible. Well, I want to thank both of you. It's been a terrific discussion. Thank you both for sharing your time with us. Evan, your morning in Chicago and Xiatao, your evening in Beijing. Uh, and I wanna thank everyone who's been watching and listening and I hope you uh, got something out of the discussion and had an opportunity to ask your questions. If we did not get to your question, I apologize. Be sure to tune in uh, to our next Carnegie Global Dialogue, uh, which will take place on Wednesday, December 9th uh, with Ashley Tellis and Dr. Han Hua. And be sure to check out the Carnegie Tsinghua's website at carnegietsinghua.org for more of our research. And if you haven't already, please subscribe to and rate the China in the World podcast on your podcast app of choice. Have a wonderful week and stay safe and healthy. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the China in the World podcast. For more episodes and research, please go to carnegietsinghua.org. This episode was produced by Lucas Cheyen, with assistance from Madison Reed, Luke Incarnation, Li Chi Shu, John Ferguson, and Sophia Rosso.